Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 69. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And you've got a doozy of a, cr- a true crime for us. I do. This is going to be a two-parter because it's too much. <laughs> There's it, It's much too much. Much too much. Just like, just like the subject meant, the guy is just much too much. It's crazy that this person isn't more well-known. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is going to blow a lot of minds when you hear, I can't believe what this guy's done. Mm-hmm. And how he decided to go about his life. And what happened to him, too. Right. All right, well, what's his name? Carl Pensram. Carl? Well, <laughs> that's the name he was given at birth. He has, like, I don't know, uh, five, eight aliases. When you kill as many people as he did <laughs> and do all the weird shit, you need a lot of names. Right. All right, let's open up this very thick file for Dick Ram. <laughs> Okay, so today's episode is a long one, and as you know, will have to be broken into two parts. Mm -hmm. So our subject for today is someone that many people may not be super familiar with, which really, it kind of surprises me because this story is crazy interesting and goes from one side of the globe to the other. It's a story that if there wasn't historical documentation at points, it doesn't even sound real. Doesn't. Sounds it, like Indiana Jones, but a serial killer. All right. It sounds like something straight out of Hollywood, mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, here we go. Ready to learn about a huge fuckhead? Carl Pensram. So this man was a remorseless and vicious killer. Uh, when you go to Wikipedia, the way they describe him is serial killer, spree killer, mass murderer, rapist, child molester, arsonist, Fuck. robber, thief, and burglar, and he hated humanity itself. He probably wasn't nice to animals either, right? Okay. <laughs> Good chance. Funny you brought that up. Oh, boy. We're going to cover that uh in episode two. Oh, okay. He once claimed that the only way to reform a man was to kill him. Mm. Although this man was a vicious killer and showed very little restraint in his actions, he was still victim to an outdated justice system and systematic childhood abuse, as you will soon hear. Now, much about his life and crimes are unknown today, and what we do know, we owe to the acts of kindness of a man who was the antithesis of our subject a young jailer by the name of Henry Lester, who encouraged Carl Pansram to write his life story. These letters written by the killer himself are, and smuggled out of the jail by Henry Lester are now held in the archives at San Diego State University, and they provide an insight into the mind of a criminal and the experiences that honed his worldview. In my lifetime, I've murdered 21 human beings. I've committed thousands of burglaries, robberies, larcenies, arsons, and last but not least, I've committed sodomy on more than 1,000 male human beings. For all these things, I am not in the least bit sorry. That was Carl. On a scaffold at the end of a rope in the exercise yard at Leavenworth Prison is where Carl Pansrum's life came to an end. But to understand how and why he ended up here, we have to go back to the beginning. He was born on June 28, 1891, to Prussian immigrants on an isolated farm in northern Minnesota. He had six older siblings, five brothers and a sister, and claim that 
they were honest and dedicated farmers, but none of that honesty and dedication to be a good person had been passed on to him. I have been a human animal ever since I was born. I was a thief and a liar. The older I got, the meaner I got. In 1898 or 99, at the age of seven, his parents separated and life became even more of a struggle for the family who worked from sunup to sundown just to keep the farm running. This seems to have been a disastrous turning point for Carl as it was this act that led him to his criminal career. At the age of eight, Pansrum was in front of a judge on a charge of being drunk and disorderly. At eight. Eight. Very nice. It was during these important childhood years, Pansrum claimed his older brothers took any excuse or reason to beat him, no matter how insignificant. Hmm. He also suffered from earaches and ear problems through most of his youth to the point that his mother performed mastoid surgery at his own kitchen table because his family couldn't afford to take him to the doctor or a hospital. Mastoid surgery? Mastoid surgery. So it's like a gland in your ear behind your ear doctors will if you get tubes put in your ears uh-huh. doctors are kind of like trying to get your ears to drain yeah so they're draining that they're basically it's it's the swollen i think it's part of the lymph node system and it's a swollen gland back there holy fucking i know it's deep deep in there and his mom just well i mean With like she, a salad fork i shit? don't know she had her other sons hold carl down to make sure that he laid still that's a note which is crazy on the kitchen table what the such fuck? a delicate surgery surgery on a formative brain and the potential chemical imbalance may not have helped matters for this kid. No. Seriously. No. Now, at the time, some people doubted Pansrum's story because, as you know, criminals will often embellish their actions and or experiences to seem more important or impressive. Right. However, this incident was shared in his autobiography and confirmation can be found in one of his juvenile record forms when he ends up at uh, the state school, which we're going to learn about shortly. Hmm. When he was admitted on the form, it asks if there are any noticeable scars and it does say behind one, uh, one behind his left ear. Hmm. So at age 11, he broke into a neighbor's home and stole everything he considered valuable and he could stuff into his pockets, including cake. Hmm. Well, that makes <laughs> sense. He's 11. Yeah. Money and a large handgun. Hmm. Now, his brothers found out about the theft and beat him severely. And they took the cake. Uh, right. They stole his cake. He was later arrested for the break-in and burglary and sentenced at the tender age of 12 years old to the Minnesota State Training School in Red Wing, Minnesota. Hmm. Now, this was a reform school for troubled kids and basically like a juvenile prison Hmm. where half the day was spent in basic classes and the other half of the day was spent doing hard labor. Hmm. It was populated by about 300 young boys from the ages of 10 to 20. The inmates uh, were under the supervision of a staff who taught under a strict Christian demerit system with little to no outside supervision as the punishments that were handed down to the young men who found themselves on the wrong side of the law. Now, this facility operated on a strict regiment of brutality, Mm. sexual abuse, and Christian indoctrination, Mm -hmm. and served little purpose for Carl apart from hardening his hatred of authority into like this really deep-rooted obsession, Mm. as you're gonna see. Now, this school allowed a level of abuse and corporal punishment that is considered appalling and downright criminal today. Panzerum himself even recounts that one of the buildings out back behind the school was nicknamed the Paint House. Not because it was where the painting material was stored, 
But it was where the boys were taken to be severely beaten for violating the rules, their bodies painted black and blue with bruises. Mm-hmm. Pansrum's admission log in October of 1903 lists his charges as incorrigibility and describes his relationship with his parents as quarrelsome. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Friendly. Right. Though these minor acts of frustration would now be seen today as an abused child lashing out who may have been able to be corrected with proper care. So they actually incarcerated him for just having a bad attitude. Right. I, well, I mean. He was he, going to have the worst attitude in the right. history of the world. So, I mean. Well, and, and it, it really kind of begins here. Of course, he was beaten at home. He was mistreated at home. Um, abused, mm-hmm. uh, lived on a farm. He did drink a lot at eight. He did, you know, knock over the neighbor's house and stole his gun. So, I mean, I could see that, but his charges were just these things. So the school seemed to care little about actually reforming young offenders, mm-hmm. preferring to punish them instead with severe beatings for any minor infraction. And while Carl acted out a lot in school, earning as many as 25 total infraction tickets for varying things like throwing food, or not being able to read properly. Hmm. The punishments were always the same, and the Christian doctrines were that were hammered into the in- inmates by school officials served only to anger Pansrum further. He hated religion hmm. from this point until he died. Right. There are so many quotes in his letters and in the statements made to others in his life that if you were to dig, you'd understand just how much he hated Christianity. Well, basically, um, because Jesus was quite literally beat into him at a young age. Now, one of the quotes says something like, he loves Jesus so much that he wishes he could crucify him all over again. Wow. I mean, it's just, right? Kind of gives you an idea of, of the kind of man we're dealing with here. Kind of an angry dude. While incarcerated at the state school, he attempted to escape once from the laundry room window that had been left open, but was quickly caught and then, quote, beaten nearly to death. He claimed to also have been sexually abused and sodomized during his time by staff and other inmates. Hmm. The more beatings he endured, the more filled with hatred and rage he became. He was hit with wooden planks, belts, heavy paddles, and leather straps, but all the while, Carl was planning his revenge and what he might do to the world when he left the school behind. I first began to think that I was being unjustly imposed upon. Then I began to hate those who abused me. Then I began to think that I would have my revenge just as soon and as often as I could injure someone else. Anyone at all would do. He later said one of his small acts of vengeance while at the school was to burn down the infamous paint house, which he did, (laughs) laughing in his bunk, watching the chaos outside as the building burned to the ground. They're like, I think the one that's laughing did it. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it was that guy. Good chance. By 1905, Carl had learned that acts of violence and defiance got him nowhere. But instead, it was deceit that would finally free him from the horrors of the Minnesota State Training School. Hmm. He had figured out that all he needed to do was say and repeat the things that the staff wanted to hear. And when he appeared before the parole board, he convinced them that he was a changed boy Mm -hmm. and had been reformed by the school. (laughs) He stated that he had accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior and wanted to go on to become a minister. And they were so proud of him. They're like, yeah, my my tutelage is what did that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? Mm. Wrong. Here's what he said. I was reformed all right. I had been taught by Christians how to be a hypocrite. And I had learned more about stealing, lying, hating, burning, and killing. 
damn. <laughs> <laughs> Carl would return home, but he didn't stay for long. His mother's health was weak due to the loss of one of his older brothers in a tragic drowning accident, and she didn't have time nor the emotional fortitude to deal with such a rebellious child. Not that there was much love loss there anyway. Carl said that he first liked and respected his mother, but slowly grew to despise her, as he did everyone else who mistreated him. Hmm. He had known little in his brief life so far besides beating, violence, and deception, and with no more family life at home to speak of, there was nothing more holding him or his rage back. I fully decided when I left there just how I would live my life. I made up my mind that I would rob, burn, destroy, and kill everywhere I went and everybody I could as long as I lived. By now, it was 1906, and Carl Pansrum was about to be unleashed on the world. Yay. At the age of 14, Fuck. <laughs> he became a hobo riding the rails and sleeping in train cars. He begged for food, and he stole it where he could. Though a life outside of the farm in the big world was just as unforgiving as the walls of the state training school had been, and in the underground nature of the homeless vagabond community, there was no lack of criminals nor predators in search of prey. I'm sure there weren't. Shortly after... Isn't. Hasn't. Something. Sorry. <laughs> Shortly after he left Minnesota, Carl hopped aboard a freight train with four men who'd been sleeping in a lumber car. They claimed they could get him new clothes and a place to sleep. But first they wanted me to do something for them. And what they could not get by persuasion, they took by force. He claimed to have been raped by the four men. He escaped with his life, but the incident seemed to destroy any feelings or empathy or compassion the young man may have had left. I left that box a sadder, sicker, but wiser boy than when I had went in. He then began to rape hobos with little or no preference. It's even a weird f- sentence. <laughs> okay, even forcing hobos to rape each other at gunpoint. Wow, okay. Once, Pansrum was caught in a boxcar by a brakeman and forced the hobo he was in the process of raping to rape the brakeman before then doing it himself. Yikes. Sodomy and rape would become the staple of Pansrum's crimes throughout the remainder of his life wherever he went. Okay, so I had to look this term up and understand the legal definition. Okay. I had heard the term used before, but only in Bible classes when I was younger. Well, hobos are actually officially boxcar willies. No, but, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, when I was younger, it was it was actually coined from the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Sodomy. Mm, right. So sodomy refers to anal or oral intercourse. Right. The non-vaginal. I guess that's what that means. Mm. I, I wasn't exactly sure. So as explained by Bass versus State or Base versus State, mm-hmm. quote, sodomy is is defined as any sexual act involving the sex organs of one person and the mouth or anus of another, end quote. Okay. So traditionally, sodomy has been referred to as a crime against nature oh, yeah. by various courts and statutes. Right. Oh, okay. So that's, that's kind of weird. It's genius shit. Okay. All right. So uh, now with terms defined, let's move on. So he would later claim to have sodomized at least a thousand men especially during his time as a hobo, as these were the victims available to him. Now, he claimed he didn't care if they were young or old, black or white. All that mattered to him is that they were human and that he was able to take his uncontrollable rage at being a victim out on others. Uh. 
So a short time later, Pansrum would be arrested in Butte, Montana for burglary and receive a one-year sentence at the Montana State Reformatory. Even at the young age of 14, Carl Pansrum was a walking pile of intimidation. Hmm. He was described as having the body of a man and weighed almost 180 pounds. At 14, wow. 14. Huh. He quickly attracted the attention of the staff as a troublesome and defiant inmate. Although Beating the shit out of the other kids, probably. Probably. Yeah. Although one guard seemed to specifically decide to make a point of harassing Panzerum and making his life as miserable as possible. Quote, he kept on nagging me until I finally decided to murder him, Panzer later stated. <laughs> he found a heavy wooden plank outside one of the workshops, and one night when the guard turned his back, Panzerum bludgeoned him in the head. Yeah, nice. He was punished for the assault, but had decided that he'd had enough of prison life and planned to escape, even if it meant his own death at this point. Okay. So in 1907, at the age of 16, Pansrum and another inmate, Jimmy Benson, escaped the school. The pair stuck together for about a month, committing various crimes like theft and the arson of churches, which Pansrum always claimed was one of his favorite crimes, and he took pleasure in burning down churches throughout his entire criminal life. Mm. So lying about his age, he would enlist in the military not long after, but constantly drunk and impossible to control, Pansrum was unable to conform to military discipline, and after the first month that he was in uniform, he was jailed several times for petty offenses. Mm -hmm. So in April 1908, he broke into the quartermaster's building and stole clothes worth about $88. How dare you? Those are Bodie's things. (laughs) (laughs) He attempted to go AWOL with the stolen goods, but was caught by military police and court-martialed. He was found guilty and dishonorably discharged and sentenced to hard labor labor for three years at Fort Leavenworth Prison. It's not a fun place. Well, it was a federal prison in Kansas, right? right. And I didn't really know much about this place until this story, so I, I did quite a bit of research hmm. uh, on a lot of these prisons. Pretty crazy. So Secretary of War and future President William Howard Taft signed the approval of the sentencing. Now, by the way... This wasn't the last time that Carl Panzerum and Taft would cross paths. Really? Nor was it the last time he would be behind bars at Leavenworth either. So he would enter ugly gray walls of this federal fortress at the age of only 16. And as no one knew his real real age, age, he was treated like any other adult male inmate. Guards invoked a strict code of conduct and mandatory obedience. A common practice in prisons of this day was a code of silence. All labor and daily business was to be conducted silently. And if an inmate was caught talking at a turn, he would be whipped and placed in solitary confinement. Any infraction, even the smallest, was punished harshly and without delay. Torture and cruel punishments were often enacted against inmates because institutions of the day were ran with very little oversight. Uh, if none, by the governing bodies. Torturing prisoners was commonly thought to be a way to keep control over the population <laughs> by by breaking men's wills and making them fear punishment. Nothing like breaking a psychologically troubled person's yeah. mind down a bit. While well, well, none of these none of these worked for Carl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carl. 
Okay, so I just want to do a, re- a real quick recap here. Okay. He's only 16, and he's already been incarcerated three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those times at a federal prison, and the jails and prisons, especially back in those days, had very little to no federal oversight. There was basically no accountability to outside authority. They're basically left to just run themselves. So it was a fairly common practice to just kind of do whatever they wanted to do to the inmates. The prison authorities could literally torture them, and there was little to no reporting going on. So the stories we've heard, like uh, Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile, which, of course, were fiction, uh, the portrayal of the prison system in this time period was essentially not fictionalized at all. Mm. At that time, the prison guards were often as sadistic as the inmates themselves and extremely abusive. We are kindness eternal. Moving on again. After suffering numerous beatings and whippings, Pansram planned an escape but was unsuccessful. Instead, he torched and burned down one of the prison workshops, causing about $25,000 worth of damages. So... $25,000 worth of damages in 1907. I looked yeah, it up. Yeah, that's replacing the fucking whole school or something. Right. You know? It's approximately $811,000 now Yikes. as of 2023. Hmm. It's a lot of damage. Yeah. He was never charged for this crime, but was constantly in trouble for breaking a multitude of other prison rules. And he was in his bed laughing like he had done before. <laughs> right. That was his MO. Like he. Well, at this point, he was then chained up to a 50-pound weight that he had to do everything with, including Mm. sleep. He was assigned to breaking rocks in a quarry as part of his sentence of hard labor, which he did for about 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Pansrum claimed that the only benefit of this was that he grew muscular and strong, but he also grew even more bitter and more angry and was consumed by vengeance and thoughts of what he would do when he was released. You know, if you were going to be smart and run a prison mm-hmm. for really bad dudes, mm-hmm. I feel like you would not do the labor stuff. Nope. And not the workout mm-hmm. stuff. Nope. You'd be like, we have ice cream day again. <laughs> or, you know. Yeah, make like them weak. Them, yeah. Now here's what he had to say. I was discharged from that prison in 1910. I was the spirit of meanness personified. Well, I was a pretty rotten egg before I went there. But when I left there, all the good that may have been in me had been kicked and beaten out of me. Upon his release in 1910, Carl Pansrum had nowhere to go. At only 19, he had already spent the majority of his life in and out of prisons and other justice institutions. And they they had helped mold him into this hardened, hateful man he'd become. He never expressed any desire to start a family or meet a woman as a normal young man his age might do. The years of torture and mental and physical abuse had taken their toll. For the next few years, he became a drifter, changing his name multiple times as he made his way across Kansas, Texas, throughout the Southwest and into California. He was arrested several times under the alias Jeff Baldwin for vagrancy, arson, larceny, and burglary. He would change aliases multiple times, leaving a trail of chaos and crime wherever he went. He would be arrested several more times between 1911 and 1913 before finally being arrested in Chinook, Michigan for trying to sell a stolen watch. Hmm. Pansrum was sentenced to a year in jail but escaped after eight months. He was arrested a year later using the alias Jefferson Rhodes and spent two years in jail. Carl continued in this way until he was arrested in Oregon. 
He was offered a minimal sentence for revealing the whereabouts of stolen goods, and Carl took the plea deal. However, the judge would go back on his word and then sentence Carl to seven years. Now, this pissed Panzerm off. This <laughs> enraged him. I'm sure. He broke out of his cell and wrecked and burnt the jail. Hmm. He was beaten to within an inch of his life by the guards, including having both of his ankles broken. Whoa. And when uh, then transferred to the toughest prison in the state, the Salem Correctional Facility, his surly and uncooperative attitude didn't seem to concern the prison guards in the least. The prison in Salem was notorious for using torture and physical abuse to keep its inmates in line. They would be stripped naked and sprayed full force with a fire hose or hung from the rafters by their wrists and whipped for any infraction. We are really sweet creatures. To Aren't each we, other. though? Yeah. This was also the location that utilized what was colorfully known as the snorting pole. Yeah, I'm sure it's a party. Now, this was a pole where an inmate was stripped and then chained up by the wrists and whipped with a cat of nine tails, which basically tore the skin and bits of flesh off the back. Right. Those have blades on the end, right? Yeah. Well, it was said that the pain was so intense, it would cause a man to jump and breathe heavily to resist screaming, hence why it was called the snorting pole. Mm. So a cat of nine tails, you'd ask this. In case our listeners have never seen one or read about them, it's basically a studded whip with multiple leather tassels or whips on it. So anywhere from nine to to 15 individual leather strands, uh, it typically has knots in the leather, and oftentimes they're studded with metal or glass. Just awful. So Pansrum was constantly in trouble, and he swore he would never fulfill the entirety of his seven-year sentence. Despite being severely beaten and tortured, he continued his raucous behavior, earning himself quite the reputation. He started several fires and burned down three prison buildings at different times. He also spent 61 days in solitary confinement where he groped around in a dark cell and ate cockroaches for sustenance. He was fed, quote, at least every three days and was provided a small bucket of water as well. However... The they just tossed his food onto the dirty and like wet floor. Oh he had no toilet. He was expected to drink the water in the bucket and then use it to defecate and urinate in. However, oh. he was only given water every three days or so. Mm-hmm. So he had to plan accordingly. Now, additionally, he stated the guards would just dump the bucket of piss and shit and then just refill it back up with water again. Well, that's how you get sick. Poop, pee, residue and all. <laughs> So in early 1917, Pensrem helped another inmate, Otto Hooker. That's an unfortunate name. <laughs> or an awesome one. Well, he helped Otto escape from the prison. Hooker would later go on to shoot and kill the sadistic warden of the prison, hmm. Warden Harry Minto, when he got into an altercation with him in a neighboring town. Now, the next warden of the prison was somewhat of an idealist who attempted to communicate it with Pensrem using kindness. He let Pansrum out of the prison gates on the condition that he returned in the evening, which I found really interesting. Yikes. To Pansrum's astonishment, he really did come back, hmm. which is really weird. <laughs> this came to an end, though, on September 18th, when Pansrum snuck away with a pretty nurse, only to be recaptured after this gunfight. 
Now, in this gunfight, um, I didn't write it all in here in my script, but in this gunfight, they went back and forth for a very long time. And then the only reason Panzerum was uh, recaptured is because he ran out of bullets. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting. He returned to the punishment cell. He was fed on bread and water and regularly beaten and sprayed with a fire hose from then forward. So in by September 1917, Carl Panzerum had already made several escape attempts by cutting through the bars of his cell. Hmm. On September 18th, he finally escaped, but it was short-lived. A few days later, a police officer would recognize Panzerum from his wanted poster and attempted to arrest him. A shootout would then ensue, but Panzerum would again run out of ammunition and was again recaptured. Hmm. After a struggle, he was returned to Oregon State and dumped into solitary, but he wouldn't remain there for long. He's not a real sit-around kind of guy. Well, he finally constructed his own tools and escaped from the prison in May of 1918. Hmm. Panzerum changed his name to another alias, John O'Leary. He shaved off his mustache and began methodically making his way to the East Coast, burglarizing and burning churches the whole way. Here... He jumped on a ship sailing around South America, where he worked in several places, including a Peru copper mine and an oil rig in Chile, which he later burnt down for (laughs) no apparent reason. This guy just likes to see (laughs) stuff burn. So, okay, so the man escapes from a notoriously torturous prison. First off, Mm -hmm. 61 days spent in solitary confinement where there's no light. And he's having to eat Eat roaches to stay alive. Now, this will drive anybody crazy. And that's been proven, which is why they don't don't do solitary confinement like that anymore. Right. But when you're already crazy. Well, I was going to say, if he wasn't already crazy before this, he's definitely crazy now. Mm -hmm. It's just, ugh. So in the summer of 1920, Carl Panzerum had resurfaced again, this time in New Haven, Connecticut. He seemed to prefer larger towns and cities, as usually the police force would be too distracted by other crimes to bother him. When he wasn't mugging and raping young, drunk transients, he was looking for houses to rob. In August, he came across this really huge house that looked looked like it was full of expensive items. So he broke into this stately home through a window and began to ransack the bedrooms. Now, in a den, he would find a large amount of jewelry, bonds, and a forty-five automatic handgun. When he looked, the name on the bonds was listed as William H. Taft, the <laughs> same man and now former president who had sentenced Pansrum to three years at Leavenworth Prison in 1907. After stealing anything of value he could carry, Pansrum escaped the house through the same window he entered and then hit the streets. Mm-hmm. He would make his way to the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where he would pawn the jewelry and sell the the bonds, getting about $3,000 in cash for the stolen goods, which he then used to purchase a yacht. Because (laughs) why the fuck not buy a yacht when you have stolen goods and bonds from a former U.S. president? (laughs) This guy's raising hell all up and down the East Coast. The boat he bought was called the Akista. He would sail the boat up and down the East River, along the way breaking into dozens of other boats and stealing anything he could get his hands on. Hmm. However, seeing all the freight and sailors coming and going off the docks, Carl devised another scheme for murder. 
Then I figured it would be a good plan to hire a few sailors to work for me, get them out on my yacht, get them drunk, commit sodomy on them, rob them, and then kill them. This I'd done for several weeks. Pansrum would scout for sailors looking for work, telling them that he had work available for them aboard his yacht, and he was in dire need of deckhands. He would invite them aboard, feed them food and liquor, wait for them to fall asleep, and while they were sleeping, blow their brains out with the 45 Colt automatic he'd stolen from Taft's home. Hmm. He would then tie a rock to the body and dispose of it in the sea. He claimed to have dumped at least 10 men this way. The scheme would work for about three weeks. Okay. Wow. He claimed to dump 10 men this way, and it worked for about three weeks. That's a lot of fucking killing. Yeah, that is. That was a, <laughs> he was a busy boy. So it worked for about three weeks before people became, uh, they began to get a little suspicious of the Akista and its weird, strange captain. Now it's like, hey, do you bring any of the people that you hire back? Right. Or what's going on? So it was here that Pansrum realized it was time to change his location. He took his last two passengers and sailed down the coast of New Jersey where he intended to kill them both. But his plans were interrupted by a huge gale that hit suddenly and smashed the Akista against rocks, sinking the ship. Pansrum swam to shore, barely escaping with his life. The two passengers escaped also, making their way to shore before completely disappearing. Worst guy to get shipwrecked with. Right. Well, they, they never knew how close they'd come to death at the barrel of a former president's gun. <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> In 1921, Pansrum would serve six months in jail in Bridgeport, Connecticut for burglary and possession of a loaded handgun. Hmm. When he was released, he got involved with a maritime union that was in the midst of a labor strike. Union hardliners had gotten into a brawl with strike breakers, and Pansrum was quickly rearrested for having a running gun battle with the police. <laughs> it's like people are fighting us. I'm, he's, I'm here exactly. For that. He's that guy. He's like, fight. I'm in. I'm down. So he jumped. I came prepared. Right. He jumped bail, fled Connecticut, and a few days later stowed away on a ship bound for Angola, a Portuguese colony in West Africa. Hmm. So he's on his way to Angola. Okay. I'm sure they're going to be happy to have him. So it's about here that I should remind you of what I said in the beginning of this episode. Remember how crazy it's going to get? Yeah. I know it's a crazy story, but I wanted to let our listeners know it's nearly all been proven through documentation. Hmm. At least 80% of this has been proven to be true. It's hmm. crazy. Hmm. Just It's just insane. So... Here in Angola, he would find work with the Sinclair Oil Company and become a foreman on an oil drilling rig, but his desire for violence and chaos followed him even to the foreign shores. It was in Africa he would rape and murder an 11-year-old boy, bashing his head in with a rock. After the murder, Panzerum went back to Libido Bay on the Atlantic coast where he would live for several weeks in a fishing village. Now, the locals suspected him of the murder, but didn't have any solid proof yet. Now, that didn't stop Panzerum from, from hiring six able-bodied locals to take him into the jungle in order to, quote-unquote, hunt crocodiles. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, but hunting crocodiles was never what Panzerum really had in mind. He killed all six men by shooting them all in the head, one by one, and then feeding their bodies to the crocodiles in the river. After this, though, he realized his time in Libido Bay was going to be short-lived since many people witnessed him leaving on the boat with six men, but returning by himself. Mm -hmm. So he would 
then head up the Congo to the Gold Coast and rob local farmers to get enough money to book passage on a ship to the Canary Islands. Now, finding no worthy targets there to rob, he immediately stowed away on a ship bound for Lisbon, Portugal. But much to his dismay, when he arrived in the city, the local government had already been made aware of his crime spree in Africa, and the local police were warned to be on the lookout for him. Hmm. He managed to hide aboard another ship, and by 1922, he was back on U.S. soil. Glad to have him back. (laughs) Now, at this point in his life, Pandrum began to admire his own abilities and just how easy it was for him to kill people. And he imagined himself going into business as a professional hitman. He brought the gun that he used to commit the murders back in the Congo with him to the States and had it fitted with a silencer. But when testing it later, he was disappointed to find that it still made quite a loud noise. If that heavy caliber pistol and the silencer had only worked as I thought it would, I would have gone into the murder business on a wholesale scale. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I thought the silencer would be going to make it silent. It did not. It was still very loud. Okay, one more recap here. Seriously. Okay. (laughs) He runs away to Africa, rapes and kills a child, kills six men one by one, shooting him in the head, feeds them to the crocodiles, robs farmers, gets to the Canary Islands, stows aboard another ship, gets to Portugal, and somehow gets home. (laughs) And his first thought is, I want to be a hitman. I should do this for a living. Right? Yeah. Holy cow. Movie script. That's all I have to say about yeah, right. this. This it sounds insane. like a, a bad guy that's already been made. Like there's right? a bunch of them. So his life of crime and chaos caused Pan's room to forever be on the move, never settling in one place for long, knowing that the authorities were always likely looking for him. After a few days back in the States, Panzerm went to the U.S. Customs Office where he retrieved his captain's license and papers for his wrecked yacht, the Akista. Hmm. He had planned on stealing another boat and refitting it under the Akista's name. So he began drifting through the local boatyards in the New York area and wandered up the coast before drifting into the Providence, Rhode Island area. Now, he couldn't seem to find another ship that resembled the Akista, though. So he continued north to Boston and then eventually arrived in Salem, Massachusetts. Going to all the Salems. It was here on the hot afternoon of July 18th, 1922, that he would encounter a 12-year-old boy walking alone. The boy's name was George McMahon, and he had spent much of the day in a neighbor's restaurant until the owner had asked him to run an errand for her at about 2.15. Quote, I sent him to the pea store for milk, giving him 15 cents, she later told the court. George left the restaurant and walked up Boston Street. Now, about an hour later, another neighbor, Mrs. Margaret Crean, saw George walking up the avenue with a stranger. Quote, in the afternoon of July 18th, while sitting in front of a window in my home, I saw a boy and a man walking up the avenue. The man was dressed in a blue suit and wore a cap she said. She, she would say later that the man was Carl Pansrum. Pansrum would accompany the child to the store where he was even bold enough to speak to the clerk for a few minutes. Hmm. Later, he convinced young George to accompany him on a trolley ride. Great planet we got here. Departing the trolley ride in a deserted part of the town about an hour later, it was there that Carl Pansrum told George McMahon that he was going to die. 
He claimed to have stayed with the boy for about three hours, repeatedly sexually assaulting him before beating him to death with a rock. Hey kids, there sure have been a lot of kids killed in this. Uh, I'm a bunny rabbit, remember? Uh, just yeah. remember how good ice cream is, you know. I'm lactose intolerant. How beautiful a sunset is. I'm allergic to the sun. But how cute puppies are. My dog died. Fucking this life is fucking beautiful. He also claimed to have stuffed several sheets of torn paper from a magazine down the boy's throat mm. and stated that the boy was as, quote, as dead as dead could be with his brains coming out of his ears, end quote. Dear Jesus, how about this? He would cover the body with branches and escape, but not before being spotted by two witnesses who took note of the strange man acting erratically. Immediately following the murder, Pansrum headed back to New York City. The boy's body would be discovered three days later. The murder was headline news for weeks, but it would remain unsolved for many years until the day in 1928 when those same two witnesses would see Pansrum again while he was in custody for another murder mm. in Washington, D.C. Now, during the early summer of 1923, Pansrum made his way back to Providence, Rhode Island, where he stole a boat out of one of the many marinas around the bay. By then, he was an accomplished sailor who had navigated the sea in dozens of countries in all sorts of weather, uh, and he set sail for Long Island Sound, an area that he was familiar with and where he felt comfortable. Pansrum docked at New Haven for weeks at a time and would go out at night cruising the streets for victims to rob and rape. Over the next few weeks, he burglarized homes and boats in Connecticut. He stole jewelry, cash, guns, and clothes off Premium Point. Filling out his all-crimes bingo card. In the city of New Rochelle, he broke into a large yacht that was moored offshore. He stole a 38 caliber handgun from the galley, and when he checked the papers on board, he found that the police commissioner of New Rochelle had owned that vessel. Stealing from cops. In June of 1923, he sailed a ship that he had stolen up the Hudson River to Yonkers, where he docked overnight. There, he picked up George Wallison and told the young man that he needed a deckhand to assist with some work on the ship. Later, that same night, he would sexually assault the young man. They sailed upriver to Kingston, where Pansrum moored the yacht in a small bay off the Hudson River. He quickly repainted the hull and changed the name on the stern. Then, he went to shore and visited the local hangouts to attempt to find a buyer. It wouldn't take long before he found himself a sucker who agreed to come take a look at the boat. Pansrum took the buyer out to the yacht, and on the night of June 27th, where they had a few drinks together, but the man had other things on his mind, unfortunately. Hmm. There, he tried to stick me up, but I was suspicious of his actions and was ready for him, Pansrum said. Hmm. He shot the man twice in the head using the same gun that he'd stolen from the police commissioner's boat. He then tied a metal weight to the body and threw the man overboard. Quote, he's still there yet, as far as I know, end quote. Huh. Uh, he would confess later. Now, this was all happening during the Prohibition, where shit got really wild around this time. There were gangs and bank robbers. This was during the crimes of John Dillinger and Babyface Nelson. It just seemed like the Wild West all over again in the 20s and 30s. Now, we think the 70s and 80s were bad because there were no cell phones, no GPS, no DNA. Right. 20s and 30s were 
absolutely insane. Lawless. Uh, it's pretty crazy when okay. I was going through the history. I mean, there's you're in part two. We have big names dropping, so there's all kinds of crazy shit that we're going to be able to talk about here. Yeah, this guy met up, met them all, didn't he? Uh, he did. The very next morning, Pan's room and his passenger, George Wallison, who actually had witnessed that killing the night before, mm-hmm. they sailed out of the bay, heading down the river. They docked that same day in Poughkeepsie. Now, Pan's room went ashore and stole a bunch of fishing nets worth more than $1,000, They then set sail again and cruised across the river to Newburgh. After the boat dropped anchor, George jumped ship and swam to shore. Now, he'd make his way back to Yonkers the next day and told police about being sexually assaulted by Pansrum. Yonkers police uh, alerted all the Hudson River towns to be on the lookout for a, quote, Captain John O'Leary, who was sailing a 38-foot yacht down the river. The police still did not know that the boat was stolen out of Providence, though. Panzer made it as far as the village of Nyack, and he secured the, lot, the, the yacht at Peterson's boatyard and then bedded down for the night. But the local police were vigilant, and on the morning of June 29, 1923, they boarded the yacht and arrested Panzerum. He was charged with sodomy, burglary, and robbery. Now, the next day, Yonkers detectives John Fitzpatrick and Charles Ward, they motored up the river on a municipal ferry to pick him up. Mm -hmm. He was placed in the Yonkers City Jail, awaiting a court appearance. On his arrest card, O'Leary listed his occupation as seafarer. Pirate. He was said to have been born in Nevada and gave his age as 40. Now, on the evening of July 2nd, he would attempt to escape the city jail with another inmate, by attempting to pry the bars out of the masonry using a piece of the bed from the cell. However, the guards found the destroyed bed during a routine cell inspection, and as a result, John O'Leary, alleged river pirate, Mm -hmm. was placed in solitary confinement. Now, there's way more about this in part two, and we'll get to that because there's a whole other aspect to this crazy story. Yeah, this guy's not There's a lot to this man's life. So, anyway... Pansrum, now unable to escape his own way, would turn to his lawyer for help. He would get the attorney to post bail in exchange for the deed to the ship he had been arrested on. Hmm. Now, the attorney agreed and put up the money. Pansrum was released and quickly disappeared. When the lawyer went to register the boat, it was discovered that the boat had been stolen. The police quickly confiscated the ship, and the attorney also lost the posted bail. Pan's room had just conned his own attorney. Yes, he did. (laughs) This guy. Larchmont was a quiet small village on the south shore of Westchester County, a few miles from the Connecticut state line. Now, during the 1920s, it was famous for its beautiful shoreline and exclusive country clubs where the upper echelon of New York society would gather on the weekends. And powder their butts. They could watch yacht races or shop at the village stores. Powder their butts. It was a world away from the fast pace of Manhattan's crowded streets. It's now, tough to go fast when your butts are powdered. <laughs> Panzerum had been to Larchmont before. On June, uh, in June of 1923, he stole a boat from the Larchmont Marina belonging to Dr. Charles Payne. Hmm. Dr. Payne. Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. The boat was found a short time later off the coast of New Rochelle. Now, Pansrum had lost control of the boat and smashed it into the rocks. 
On the night of August 26, 1923, Pansram broke into the Larchmont Trains Depot. Using an axe he found outside, he shattered a large window and crawled into the building. Here, he found dozens of suitcases which belonged to passengers for the next day's train. Now, as he was rifling through the baggage looking for items to steal, a Larchmont police officer, Officer Richard Gruby, who was making his early rounds, happened to come by. Quote, I went around to a different window and I saw him kneeling in front of the stove in the depot with an open trunk in front of him and I covered him with a gun, end quote. Hmm. This is what Gruby told reporters. Hmm. However, Pansrum didn't hesitate to confront the officer. Hmm. He uh, likes that shit. He's a down with that. Right. Well, the Porchester Daily described what happened, quote, John O'Leary, a giant in stature and was armed with a murderous looking axe. Mm-hmm. A murderous axe. That's kind of funny. <laughs> when they were forging it, they're like, this one's murderous looking. <laughs> You're right, it is. Put that in the other pile, away from the normal axes. <laughs> Keep them separate. Oh, media. <laughs> so with a murderous looking axe, the officer immediately grappled with O'Leary. And after a fierce struggle in the dark, disarmed him and placed him under arrest. End quote. So he was brought to the police station on Boston Road where he identified himself as John O'Leary. He confessed to previous break-ins and was charged with three additional burglaries. Now, in court the next morning, the judge set his bail at $5,000 and remanded Pansrum to the county jail pending a jury. Now, as he sat in the village jail, Pansrum told the cops he was an escaped prisoner from Oregon where he was serving a 17-year sentence for shooting a police officer. But Pandrum said a lot of things. You know, some of the officers actually called him, uh, his nickname was like Chisler. Hmm. And I looked it up, and I guess it's a man who admits to crimes that he didn't do. Huh. The so, Chisler. He was a Chisler. Batman. And, but and still, they had hoped that he creeped him out. So they hoped that he'd be moved to another facility or even another jail. They creeped him out. They're like, we're surrounded by creeps. <laughs> yeah, well, really, he, really creepy people. Okay, so think of how creepy that is. Yeah, exactly. So this dude broke into a train station, and he brought an axe to a gunfight. Happily. Seriously. He yeah. came after the police officer who had a gun on him with an axe. Wow. Guy's nuts. Yeah. So Larchmont police sent telegrams of inquiry to Oregon to verify Pansrum's claims. On August 29th, Larchmont police chief William Hines received this reply from Warden Johnston Smith of the Oregon State Penitentiary. Quote, Jeff Baldwin <laughs> is wanted very badly in Oregon. His was a noted case that attracted considerable attention all over the Pacific Coast, and we are very anxious to send an officer for him at the earliest possible moment. One End officer? Quote. I don't know about one. <laughs> Pansrum was known as Jeff Baldwin in Oregon uh-huh. and stood, still had more than 14 years left on his sentence. <laughs> now, there was even a $500 cash reward for his capture, which, by the way... Pansrum then tried to collect for himself <laughs> for his own arrest. Quote, O'Leary told the police that since he volunteered the information as to his escape from prison, he wished to claim the $500 himself. Wow. The Standard Star reported. 
You think Isn't everyone that would be there? Yeah, all the people that are like wanted fifty thousand. It's like, uh, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I'm going to turn myself in for fifty grand. Yeah. So Pansrum realized that his future prospects and his freedom was limited at this point. He knew that Oregon wanted him back badly, and he either had to escape or face the next few decades in prison. During his recent trip to the city of Kingston in the Upper Hudson, he'd committed numerous burglaries and robberies, right. some of which were never discovered. Now, while he was held in the Larchmont jail, Pansrum wrote a letter to a mysterious John Romero in Beacon, New York, which was directly across the river from Newburgh, where George Wallison had jumped in. Quote, this will probably be the last you ever hear from me, he wrote. I expect to go to jail for the balance of my life, so you can see I can lose no more. I have never said anything to anyone about you, but bear this fact in mind. If I should talk and tell what I know, I can and will put you away for a long time. Wow. End quote. Pansrum demanded that Romero send him $50 right away, and he would forget all he knew. <laughs> he said that the boat was lost, but Romero could still cash in on the Newberg deal, and he signed the letter Captain John K. O'Leary. Mm -hmm. Now, this money never did arrive, and police never found Romero. It was a mystery. Hmm. Pansrum remained in custody, and unfortunately, this is where we have to leave off for this evening until part two. Oh, shit. I know. Well, let's talk about what we just learned on the other side of this thing. Yes. What do our dipshits think so far? So we're leaving off right where things get crazy as fuck. Dude. If that wasn't already crazy If that fuck. wasn't crazy enough. That required three recaps just to like... Hey, I know. That's... It was so much shit. And I didn't even put... There's so much stuff missing in the first part of his life. Hmm. Crazy shit. But I can't believe all the shit that he did. Dude tried to collect the, his own reward. That's pretty, pretty brazen. <laughs> it's pretty unique. He was outsmarting everyone throughout oh the world, so he's like, I could do that. Well, I, d I do want to tell you that things don't really improve for Carl. <laughs> oh, they they don't. really don't. Honestly, in part two, it, it's, it's just more shenanigans. However, if you thought this half was unbelievable, yeah. The next part is going to, it. well, it's mind-blowing, at least for me. I know a few pieces of it, but... There wow. is some seriously crazy shit. Hmm. So, mini doc, uh, it was like a docu-series in the beginning, and we've got a full-on movie coming next week, so <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is crazy. Well, because this is a two-parter, we'll leave it at that. Thank yeah. you guys for listening. Thank you for all the hard research. I know that there's a lot of effort in this one. There's a lot of shit in this one. Don't want to meet people like this on no. the train or anywhere no, in no. the world. He's the worst possible example <laughs> of the... I do not want drifter. to meet him on a plane. I do not want to meet him on a train. In the rain. Absolutely not. Or a plane. No. Or hot air balloon. No thanks. No. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to the Trusted Turd Triad of Don, Chris, and Bodie. Mm -hmm. You can find them on Facebook and in Discord. Uh, PJ and Minnie doing our Reddit, our mm -hmm. subreddit. We appreciate the shit out of all of you guys. There's so many people to thank always. There's mm -hmm. Hoje who does the Jargoneers. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of groups. We've got our, our meme group. Mm -hmm. There's crafters groups and sellers of things groups. <laughs> video games groups. It's really fun to see. It is. And we appreciate everyone that's manning those and that takes the time to do that and that... We hear about all the cool things you guys are doing as far as spreading what we do mm -hmm. and getting one people, one person at a time kind of mm -hmm. thing. I love it. Mm -hmm. It says grassroots and underground as fuck. You can always rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs> That's a podcast <laughs> thing to say. 
There's also Patreon, of course. We really, yeah. really appreciate all of our patrons. That's how this world moves these days. And mm-hmm. patrons is a fair way to do it, I think. It's a nice way to be decentralized from all the things that could be. Scatcast.com for merch and info at scatcast.com is how you get a hold of us mm-hmm. and let us know what's up. So as always, we'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye. Bing! Bong. That's the noise of a poop butt.